there and welcome to episode 18 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your cold as ice host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. In this episode, I've got two more season two gems for you. First up is episode nine, The Singapore File, and then episode 10, All the King's Horses. It's been a while, so I'm going to take this opportunity to remind everyone that I do endeavor to pronounce everyone's name correctly when I'm going through guest casts and everything. I do really try. It's just that I'm really, really bad at it. So if I mispronounce any names, please know I am doing my best and actively failing miserably because that's just how I roll through life. Okay then, let's go to Hawaii. Episode 9, The Singapore File, air date November 19th, 1969, directed by Richard Gist. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O, and written by Robert C. Dennis. This is his third of six episodes. A man in a white suit enters a Singapore go-go club and, with the help of an ID in a purse left on a table, finds the woman he's looking for, who is currently out on the dance floor. He joins her for a dance, only to be interrupted by someone trying to cut in. A fight breaks out, and the man in white pulls a knife. The woman runs for her life. It turns out he's there to kill her. The woman is Nicole Wiley, a potential witness in a murder investigation against a mobster named Ravasco. She ran from Honolulu because she feared for her life, but now that Ravasco's man, Victor, has found her, she calls McGarrett for help. Steve agrees to come to Singapore to escort her back to Honolulu. Danny warns him that this could be a trap because Ravasco has been very vocal about wanting him dead. Steve knows that, but he wants Ravasco in jail more. He tells Dano to mind the store and squeeze Ravasco while he's gone. In Singapore, Steve gets some assistance from local police inspector Fong, who provides him with a car and a driver and a warning to be careful. Steve tracks Nicole down to a bar where, for a price, the bartender tells him what room she's in. 
Steve finds Nicole alone and a little on the buzz side. He questions her about why she ran and why she wouldn't go to the Singapore police for help. Nicole says she ran because she was scared and tells Steve that she had to make a living in Singapore some way, which she tries to forget. They have a tense exchange when Steve checks to make sure she's not using, and then the two of them depart out the back door where they're met by Inspector Fong and Steve's driver. It seems that every man has a price, and Inspector Fong's is the $50,000 that Ravasco is offering. In the ensuing melee, both Fong and his man are killed, Steve loses his wallet, and Steve and Nicole are on the run. Steve hotwires a car, and using the money Nicole has on her, he gets them passage aboard a freighter bound for Manila since he knows the airports will be watched. They're listed on the passenger manifest as Mr. and Mrs. Collins, though their birth is no honeymoon suite. Steve takes the lower bunk, much to Nicole's chagrin, and when she challenges him on it, he explains that anyone coming through the door will shoot at the lower bunk first. Nicole accepts this and takes the top bunk, though she does try dropping one of her shoes on Steve. The mating ritual ends with Nicole asking Steve not to go to sleep until she does and to call her Nicole. Ravasco is having a mob board meeting, expressing his dismay that both Nicole and Steve are still alive when one of his men interrupts to let him know that he heard from Victor, the man in white. He got a hired gun aboard the freighter during a stop, a fact that Steve also learns when he overhears a Morse code message in the radio room. He sends one off to Danny to let him know that they're bound for Manila and in trouble. Danny receives the message and sends Chin Ho off to meet them, while he and Kono stay in Honolulu and squeeze Ravasco. Steve tells Nicole about the killer on board and the open offer on their lives, which will have every hood after them. Nicole asks how they find the killer on board, and Steve assures her that he will find them. That night at the ship's dinner with the captain, we're introduced to the potential suspects, including Major Gladden and his wife, and Reverend Holloway. Mrs. Gladden passes Steve a note during dinner, and then later, when Steve and Nicole are dancing, Steve allows the Major to cut in so he can go talk to her. It turns out that Major Gladden is a womanizer, something that Nicole finds out when he whispers something in her ear. Disgusted, she goes to look for Steve and finds him fighting with someone on the deck. One of the men goes overboard. It turns out it was the good reverend who was the hired gun, and now he's shark bait. Safely back in their berth, Nicole is crying hysterically at her wit's end from the repeated attempts on their lives. Steve calms her down and then she kisses him, which he doesn't mind, but he eventually pulls away. Now's not the time. Ravasco's men will be waiting for them in Manila, unless they decide not to go. So the thing about this episode is that even though it's called The Singapore File and some of the action does take place in the beginning of the episode in Singapore, majority of the action actually takes place on a ship. So in that way, it's kind of like Friday the 13th Part 8 in which it's called Jason Takes Manhattan, but really like only like 10 minutes of the movie is in Manhattan, the rest of it's on a boat. But this is better because nobody teleports and it's actually more interesting to watch because you would think it would be boring as there's not a whole lot of action scenes into it, but there is enough tension going through the episode and the way it's paced and everything. It's actually quite good. It's entertaining and it keeps your attention. And I know what you're thinking. They're on a boat bound for Manila. How do they get off the boat before they go to Manila? And I will explain a little bit of that in a non-spoilery way later. But first, let's go back to Singapore. Because this episode starts off with Nicole Wiley wearing an absolutely atrocious blonde wig, dancing with somebody in this, it's kind of like a go-go club in a way, because 
there are two girls like go-go dancing. It, there's a lot of black light happening. It's magnificent. The 60s were wonderful. So we have some a couple of girls go-go dancing. There's obviously people on the dance floor hanging out, being super cool. And Nicole is dancing with a guy. Victor, the killer, comes in, spots her purse on the table, checks her ID, goes over, and starts dancing with her. And it's kind of wild to think that if this other dude had not tried to cut in and caused a fight... She probably would have taken him back to her place and he would have murdered her and this episode never would have happened. But by luck and the will of the writer, this guy cuts in. She realizes he's there to kill her and she runs for her life. And she goes back to her place and she calls Steve and it's, it's a rather hysterical phone call. Nicole Wiley is played by Marge Doucet, who we've seen before, and I do quite like her, but she is a little over the top when she's being hysterical, and that probably served her well on soap operas that over-emoting. But it's a little much here. But you get the point that she's obviously at the end of her rope. She's ready to call for help and she calls Steve for help. And of course, Steve cannot resist to nail a mobster. So he jets off to Singapore to go fetch her and leaves Danny behind to mine the store and squeeze her vascular. Now, here's the thing. The episode is mostly Steve and Nicole. You get a few other scenes like with Ravasco and his mob board meeting. And it really does look like a board meeting because everybody is sitting around a table, everybody's dressed in suits, and he's banging on the table like an upset CEO. It is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I don't think mob bosses actually conduct their business like that. Or maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe some of them take that whole looking like legitimate businessman thing too far. And you get a couple of scenes back in Honolulu with Danny and Kono and Chinho, but not much. So we don't actually ever see Danny and, and Five-O squeeze Ravasco. We're just, it's just understood that that's what's happening while Steve is in Singapore. And he meets up with Inspector Fong, who you kind of suspect the minute you see him because he's smoking a cigarette with one of those long cigarette holders. And I don't know of anybody who was ever truly good that used one of those. Plus, it seems that the actor is wearing a bald cap, so he has this, it's kind of an odd look. I think he ends up looking more villainous than he's supposed to. But he does, he helps Steve in quotes there and gives him the warning to be careful. So Steve tracks down Nicole and it's a really interesting scene because he he shows up to this bar, bribes the bartender to find out where Nicole is. And when he goes to the room, he literally kicks the door open because obviously he's suspecting a trap that somebody else might be behind the door, one of Robasco's men. But what's great is like he kicks this door open and like nobody else in the bar really seems to care or notice or mind. They're just like, happens every Thursday. He goes in, sees Nicole's alone and she's a little bit buzzed. She's been drinking, obviously. And he starts interrogating her about why she ran, why she didn't stay in her apartment, why she didn't go to the police for help. And the implication is, is that in order to make a living in Singapore, she's become a sex worker. You said you couldn't go to the uh, Singapore police for help. Why? Let's cut the question. Let's just get out of here, Miguel, okay? Why? Why, Miss Wiley? Why couldn't you go to the police? I have had to make a living here in Singapore. Some way. Now I try to forget how I make that living. maybe, but not that. What about behind the knees? Check them 
Clean, right? Sorry, honey. I have to be sure who I was traveling with. Sure. Sure. So the chemistry is established in that scene between Steve and Nicole, and they have great chemistry. And I think that's a big part of the reason why we can go through the duration of this episode where there's only small spurts of activity when you know that there are killers chasing them is because the way that the actors carry that tension using their chemistry, it really, really works. It really sells an episode that could otherwise be really dull and fall flat. So Steve and Nicole leave the bar. They run into Inspector Fong and the driver. Steve realizes they've been set up. And an interesting fight occurs because I don't know exactly how this fight was staged. But it, but in some way, Steve has puts away his gun when he sees it's Inspector Fong. Inspector Fong pulls his gun. The driver is standing next to Inspector Fong. And Steve is kind of like up on, on some stairs. Nicole's behind him. And somehow... In all of this, when they're having their exchange, he grabs the driver, pulls him in front of himself to use him as a shield. So Fong ends up shooting him and then he shoots Fong. So they're both dead. But it's just the way that it, it's staged. It's kind of, a, it's a little awkward. And it took a couple of times for me to realize exactly how this throwdown was happening. But regardless of the staging, Fong and his man are dead. Steve loses his wallet in the scuffle, which Victor, the man in white, finds. And that means that Steve and Nicole are on the run. And they discuss this while hiding in a stair, like on a staircase, like an outside staircase, pretending to be like, I think they're supposed to be pretending to be two lovers hugging on this staircase as to not draw attention to each other. But they discuss the fact that he lost his wallet. She's only got a few hundred dollars on her. As Nicole points out, you're a fugitive now because you can't go to the police. By the time they're done questioning you, she'll be dead because of Victor. So they come up with the idea that they need to get out of Singapore. They need to get back to Honolulu. The only way to do that is aboard a ship because not only will the authorities be watching the airports, but probably Ravasco as well. And to get to the port, to get away, Steve hotwires a car, which I would have thought would have been totally against his programming as a law enforcement officer who is so addicted to upholding the law. But apparently Steve has a naughty streak and it comes in handy. So they end up getting booked on this freighter, which is definitely not a Norwegian cruise line. It's a rust bucket tanker, and they're in this lower berth, I guess. I think she says something about they booked fourth class passage on a third class freighter. Excuse me. I see that you're taking the lower bunk. Mm Mm-hmm. Lower. You'd like me to take the upper? 
That's right, the upper. Unless you want to sit up all night or sleep on the deck. McGarrett, whatever else you may be, you are not a gentleman. You've got a date in a Honolulu courtroom. I want you to be alive to keep that date. Okay, what has that got to do with an upper lower bunk? If anybody comes through this door over here with a gun, the first thing they fire at is the body in the lower bunk. Now, I don't want that to be your body. And what I really like about that scene is that it's not only amusing, it not only takes care of some exposition as to why Steve will be taking the lower bunk and how, and that he is, it's always at the forefront of his mind that they are in danger. Pardon whoever is watching something at an incredible volume in my house. Like I said, nobody in this house can watch anything at a reasonable volume. So while it establishes that, it also kind of breaks down some of the, not necessarily animosity, but some of that resistance of the rules. I am the cop. You are the person that's going to be testifying. You're the one who ran. You okay up there? It also shows that Nicole, despite some issues with Steve, she really does trust him. So it's a very sweet scene, I think. Jack Lord has this smile when it when he's playing McGarrett and he's mildly amused about something. He has this smile that is just so pure and so glorious. I absolutely love it every time he does it. Jack Lord is already a good-looking man, but when he does that smile, it just, it elevates that to um, an almost unbearable level. So then it's established that the ship does make stops. It's not a one-way trip to Manila. They do, it's a freight ship. So they're stopping at places so they can drop off freight and pick up freight or whatever. And so they do make stops because Bravasco finds out that Victor did get a man on board. And Steve finds that out in the radio room when he overhears a Morse code message, which I thought was a great nod to his time in the Navy. Of course, he would learn Morse code while serving. So I thought that was a nice little nod to his service. And he overhears the message, takes it down, claims that he messed something up on his own message, and writes another message out to Danny, which identifies himself and Nicole as Mr. and Mrs. Collins, and that they'll be in Manila and they'll need some help. And the wife sends her love which I thought was a great touch because when Danny gets the message, he's like, yeah, Steve's in trouble. And I'm like, yeah, because he's apparently married. 
But anyway, that's mobilizes 5-0 to get someone to Manila to help Steve out. And I really did like that scene because we didn't have, like I said, we didn't have a, a whole lot of time with the rest of 5-0. So, but this scene really made up for it. Steve's in trouble. Yeah, worse than you know. Tell him. Just talk to my cousin. Words out in the streets, Provasco dropped the price for the lives of Steve and Miss Wiley. 50000 and a 10G bonus. Every hophead, hood, and two-bit crook in the Orient will be gunning for them. Jenny, you're on the next flight to Manila. On my way. Wait a minute. That man needs help. I'm on that flight, too. Uh-huh. Steve said to land Ravasco. Squeeze him. And that's what we're going to do, Kono. We're going to squeeze him hard. Get going, brother. And bring me back a souvenir, huh? What would you like? Ravasco's head on a plate? That's what I want. So they have this captain's dinner and we're introduced to the list of suspects because that's basically the whole purpose of that captain sitting down and introducing everybody. So there's one guy that you just see at the dinner table. There's a blind guy who probably has a name that I didn't write down. There's the major and his wife. There's Steve and Nicole. And then the latecomer to dinner is Reverend Holloway. So we see at the dinner that Mrs. Gladden slips a note to Steve. And you're kind of like, oh, what is this? It's a bit of a red herring in a really interesting way. Because she, it's a note asking him to meet her. Which he does. He's dancing with Nicole after dinner and allows the major to cut in. And this like really upsets Nicole because she has told Steve that she feels safe with him. And what does he do? He leaves her with someone else who could be a a killer. But I guess Steve is confident enough to think that no one's going to kill Nicole in front of like a room full of witnesses. So he goes to meet Mrs. Gladden, who basically informs Steve that her husband is a womanizer. He's a remorseless woman chaser and that he has designs on Nicole. So Steve appreciates that he, she took the time to explain that to him. And during this, uh, the blind man comes out and it looks like he's overhearing their conversation. And you suddenly start to question whether or not this man's really blind. And I think Steve does too because of the way he looks at him. But then inside, we see Nicole dancing with the Major, and the Major whispers something in her ear, which she looks like she wants to slap him, but refrains. Instead, she just leaves to go looking for Steve, and that's when we see somebody hit Steve over the head and try to throw him overboard, but he recovers, gets back on the deck. Nicole sees the whole thing, and she's like screaming in terror. There's a tussle, and somebody goes overboard. And she goes running down there because she thinks it's Steve, but it's not. It turns out to be Reverend Holloway, which you could have probably picked that out as soon as he sat down at dinner, because why would you trust a reverend? Especially one who was late to dinner. Anyway, this basically unhinges Nicole, and again, we have Marge Doucet kind of giving it her soap opera all when she's having this crying fit in the in the room with Steve. And Steve has a very interesting way of calming her down and that first of all he says this all could have been avoided if you hadn't run if you hadn't run from Honolulu if you'd stayed and testified but then he does show some kindness and lets her know that it doesn't matter how many men that Ravasco sends they will be all of them so Steve has this momentary lapse of duty giving in to his feelings for Nicole it's a beautifully human moment another time Another place, Nicole. Yeah, I forgot you were on duty. 
I think that if it happened, if this episode aired in today's times, they probably would have gone ahead and done it. But back in 1969, Steve was made of Sterner's, Sterner stuff and he resists that temptation. And that's when it comes up that Ravasco will definitely have a man waiting for them in Manila. And they come up with the plan to leave the ship before Manila. So we've already had it established that the, the ship does make other stops and that's how they get off the boat. But it's great because Chen Ho, of course, goes to Manila to meet them there and finds out they're gone. No, unfortunately, Victor the Man in White overhears this information and, of course, a final showdown has to ensue. And the only thing I will say about that is Chin Ho to the rescue. <laughs> The guest cast is a small one, but I wouldn't want to be stuck on a freighter coming from Singapore with anybody else. So let's take a really quick look at them. As I said, Nicole Wiley was played by Marge Doucet. This is her second of two episodes for the series. We also saw her in 24 Karat Kill. Mrs. Gladden was played by Frida Mae Bird. We'll see her in one more episode, and those are her only two credits. Inspector Fong was played by Raymond Tan. On IMDb, he has three other credits, but there are no roles listed, and he also has one producer credit. Kai is played by Bunny Kahanamoku. We'll see them in one more episode, and those are the only credits. Lee Ravasco was played by Dan Legant. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in the first season episodes Death Watch and The Box. Victor was played by Dick Brady. We'll see him in two more episodes, and those are his only credits. And in uncredited roles, we have Mr. Higby is played by Ronald Kent. We'll see him in two more episodes, and those are his only credits. The Harbor Master was Moki Palacio. This is his second of six episodes. He was also in the first season episode, Tiger by the Tail. And Reverend Holloway was played by Edward Sheehan. This is his fifth of 15 episodes. Our director is Robert Gist. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-0, but he did direct 20 episodes of Peter Gunn, 7 episodes of The Naked City, 3 episodes of Route 66, 5 episodes of The Richard Boone Show, 2 episodes of 12 O'Clock High, 3 episodes of Dr. Kildare, and 2 episodes of The Untouchables. He also directed the movie Della with Joan Crawford. He actually has more acting credits than directing credits. He turned up in the shows Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, Hawaiian Eye, The Untouchables, Rawhide, Peter Gunn, and Half Gun Will Travel. And he was also in the movies Operation Petticoat, The Naked and the Dead, and Strangers on a Train. And that is The Singapore File. I really do enjoy this episode. It's a fun kind of chase episode, even though there isn't a whole lot of action to it. There are spots, but it's not like all the way through. The tension really is enough to carry it. And honestly, the chemistry between Jack Lord and Marge Doucet is just so brilliant. You love them together. They're incredibly fun to watch. And so is this episode. So give it a go. Jay! See anything of a chin hole, whatever that is? It's a cop. Me. jail where he belongs but then i shouldn't be telling that to his friend should i i think finney's hands are clean just because 5-0 says you started your hearings we uh we checked them inside out i sent you the results of that investigation you sent them back unopened why 
You're forgetting I'm chief counsel. I'm conducting my own investigation. Where? In the headlines? Is that where you're going to try it? Oh, why would I do that? <laughs> For this. Don't jump to conclusions. You're liable to get in trouble. You make it sound like you're in business for yourself, Mr. Irwin. Bible's job is the investigation of crime in the state. Governor of Hawaii says so. Now, if you know something about Finney, tell me, and I'll help you bust him. What do you know that I don't know? Fletcher. Sorry, I don't serve subpoenas. Well, that one's for you. Oh, for me? Tuesday at 10. Be on time. Season 2, Episode 10, All the King's Horses. Air date, November 26, 1969. Directed by Richard Benedict. This is his 7th of 11 episodes. And written by William Robert Yates. This is his first of two episodes. An older gentleman who should not be hopping fences hops a fence and attempts to serve Mike Finney a subpoena. His friend and bodyguard, Rudy, releases the hounds and the process server barely makes it out with his skin. He goes back to Attorney General hopeful Charles Irwin and his private investigator Joe Fletcher and tells them that they can serve the papers their damn selves. Instead, they go to a pool party where Steve McGarrett is chatting up a pretty girl. He takes a break to talk to Irwin and Fletcher about their crime hearing. Irwin believes that Finney is involved in some dirty work involving the unions, but 5-0 cleared Finney of any criminal activity when he first came to the island nine years ago, and he's been clean since. Steve suggests that Irwin is doing it to win votes, and Irwin suggests that Steve show up to the hearing by serving him with a subpoena. Senator Colt, who's involved in the hearing, tries to soothe Steve's nerves about it, but just then someone takes a shot at Irwin in the pool, missing him. Steve races to the beach where the shots came from, but only finds the gun. Daniel arrives at 5-0 headquarters with the rifle and his report. The gun was stolen, there are no prints, and Irwin is saying that it was a hit organized by Finney. Jin Ho says the plaster casts of footprints gave them a size 10 shoe and suggests the person was right-handed. Kono has a witness who saw the guy running through her backyard, going over the mug books. Given the scope on the rifle, Steve doesn't think anyone should have missed Irwin and suggests that it could be a setup. Steve gets a call from the governor and goes to his office to meet Senator Oishi, the man in charge of the hearing. He apologizes for the subpoena and hopes that Steve will be helpful. He admits that all he knows about Mike Finney is what Irwin and his investigator tell him. Once he leaves, Steve tells the governor that Mike Finney is clean and that Irwin will hang him in the headlines. The governor knows that Irwin is doing it for political gain, but it's too late to stop things now. Think of the optics! He asks Steve to serve Finney personally, promising that he'll get a fair hearing. Steve takes Danny to see Finney, who has become a legally rich man by growing and selling flowers. Steve and Finney are friendly. Finney is the only man to call Steve Mac. He knows Steve is there to serve him and tells him that it will be the same as always. He'll be put on trial about his past and they'll start asking about his friends. He won't take the fifth, but he won't squeal either. Even though he can't say it for Irwin or Fletcher, Steve says the chairman is fair. He irritates Finney when he says he can't make any deals for him, and the irritation is only exacerbated when Finney's daughter Judith shows up with a newspaper bearing a headline about Finney being involved in the crime probe. Steve also isn't thrilled about the headline and calls on Senator Oishi to stop Irwin. At first, Oishi demurs, and, but when Steve tells him that Finney has made a legal living since coming to the islands, something Irwin and Fletcher didn't tell him, 
and that Phineas paid his debt to society, Oishi changes his mind. As someone who was interned in World War II, he understands what it's like to get a second chance. He tells Steve it won't happen again, which he makes clear to Irwin later. Irwin thinks 5-0 is covering for Finney. The witness ideas the gunman, a former PI and bail bondsman who worked for Fletcher named Vince Watson. Steve wants him apprehended quietly, no EPBs. Danny goes to the Finney residence to ask him if he knows Watson, but Finney isn't home, and Judith doesn't know where he is, and she doesn't know Watson, and can't Danny and everyone else leave her father alone? He's not that man anymore. Meanwhile, Irwin tries to get Senator Colt to remove Oishi from the hearing, but he won't do it. Colt has too many Japanese constituents, and as of right now, the hearing isn't hurting his chances at re-election. He wants Irwin to be Attorney General, so he'll talk to Oishi, but that's it. After he leaves, Irwin and Fletcher decide that McGarrett is most likely taking payoffs, and they should look into that. In other news, a hitman has arrived on the island, and during a tour of one of Mike Finney's flower shops, he breaks away from the group and investigates the offices. He can't get in Finney's office, but he does find that it has a slightly frosted window that's perfect for shooting through. When Fletcher can't get Steve to listen to his proposition in Steve's office, mostly because Steve realizes that Fletcher is wearing a wire and kicks him out, he breaks into Finney's office at the flower shop and attempts to manufacture evidence of a bribe. Unfortunately, the hitman has also broken into the flower shop and thinking Fletcher is Finney, shoots him through the window. 5 finds evidence of the bribery frame and evidence that a mainland gun is the cause of Fletcher's death. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that he was most likely gunning for Finney. Steve tells Finney that he thinks some of his old pals are nervous about the crime probe, and Finney agrees they could be. Steve puts Finney into protective custody, but Finney says he'll handle things his own way. The thing is, is that we really don't see what Mike Finney's way is, so that remains a mystery. Now, this episode is one of those episodes that has a lot going on in it. I had, like, written down a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm like, holy crap, we have to be halfway through this episode, and it was literally only, like, 15 minutes in. But the thing is, is that it, at no time does it feel overcrowded. It doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel convoluted. It's just one of those episodes where there is just a lot going on. So the main thread of the episode is the fact that this Attorney General hopeful, Charles Irwin, is doing this crime probe, pushing for this crime probe, basically to get headlines, to make himself look good so he will, hopefully he will get voted in as Attorney General. And the thing is, is that pretty much everybody acknowledges this. There is no question about his purpose. The governor says it. The senators say it. Everybody says it. Everybody knows it. It's not even a secret. But Charles Irwin does not acknowledge this. He maintains that he is here for law and order and to punish people who are guilty and all of this stuff. And it's like, buddy, you are the only one believing your own lies. And Charles Irwin is played by Jason Evers, who for the most part is a very attractive man. And I don't know how he managed to do this, but in this episode, because he is playing such kind of a scummy character, one of those real entitled, do whatever I can to get what I want kind of people, it somehow makes him have an incredibly punchable face. I don't know how he does it, but that is an amazing piece of acting right there. And it really is a kind of a great look about how politics works and how much of it is about optics because there's that whole scene with the governor which Steve goes and he, he's complained now to like two senators and, and the governor about Irwin's tactics and that he's trying to hang Mike Finney in the headlines. And he's only doing it to be elected. When he brings this complaint to the governor, the governor acknowledges it. He's like, but I can't stop this hearing now because it will be viewed as throwing up a roadblock. 
basically saying that the public will turn against me because I'm doing the right thing. Instead of understanding that, oh, hey, this guy is persecuting a man who served his debt to society. We can't do that. We actually have to let this run its course because we want to be elected too. Because Senator Colt actually just comes right out and says it. And he goes, I'm pretty solid for re-election. He goes, but I can't push against Oishi because he's Japanese. And I have a lot of Japanese constituents in my area. So I don't want to lose their votes by pushing out Oishi so I can talk to him and make him see reason. But I'm not going to get rid of him for you like Irwin wants. And then we have Oishi who acknowledges that Irwin's tactics are, I think he says, heavy-handed. But for the most part, he seems to be a, a straightforward guy in that Mike Finney will get a, a fair trial. He's the head of the this probe. He's the head of the hearing. So he ensures Steve that he'll get a fair a fair trial. And you get that sense with him that he, w- he will be fair. But the other thing that you realize is that Charles Irwin and Fletcher, which just sounded like a law group the way I said that, but Irwin and Fletcher are feeding him the lies that they want him to believe. They're feeding him the bullshit and not saying the truth because Steve points out, he's like, well, did you know that Mike Finney, because Oishi says that Mike Finney is currently living large on money that he got from a life of crime. And Steve's like, no, he came here flat broke. He made this money growing and selling flowers, primarily for like lays and stuff. That's how he made his money. And Oishi's like, well, I didn't know that. And he's like, yeah, because Erwin and Fletcher aren't going to tell you that. They only want you to know bad things, twisted things. And I think when Oishi realizes that, he views Erwin and Fletcher with a little more skepticism. So you do get the sense that Oishi is going to be fair, particularly when Steve asks him, when is a man done paying his debt to society? When does a man stop paying for his past? That's a difficult question, is it? Seems to me the Constitution guarantees a citizen freedom from harassment. In 1941, I was also imprisoned, interned by the government as an enemy alien. I was a Jap for five years, an Oriental for another ten. Now I'm an American, but it was a long time before people stopped looking at me as if I were still the enemy. This will not happen again, Steve. Thank you, Senator. Now, you have to think this was 1969. Japanese internment happened 25, 30 years prior to that. So it wasn't actually that long ago. There were still people living on that island who had been interned. There are still people walking around today who remember being in in an internment camp. That's the kind of thing that resonates. So while you trust Oishi, you don't trust anybody else in this game. And you kind of don't trust that Oishi will be able to do anything against anybody else in the game. So we have this main thread going through about Mike Finney being put up against the crime probe. Now what's great about this is that we know that Steve is committed to law and order. He's committed to justice. He is committed to apprehending and prosecuting and convicting lawbreakers. He upholds the law. And now we're getting the flip side of that in that as far as he is concerned, Mike Finney paid his debts to society. He did time in prison, I think, for manslaughter is what they said. They know he was in the racketeer business. He, they know he had, at one time, questionable ties. But Steve believes he came to, to Oahu. He's lived in Honolulu with absolutely no trouble. He believes that he's clean. He believes that the man has paid his debt to society and deserves a second chance. 
It's a fascinating take from a guy who is so dedicated to law and order because most of the time those people, they will never see you as anything other than a criminal. Whereas Steve believes that people can be reformed, that people can change, and that people deserve second chances. So it's a nice twist on his character. And the resulting friendship that comes from that between him and Finney is really kind of nice. Uh, Mike Finney's played by James Gregory, whom I absolutely love. And he has great chemistry with Jack Lord in the scenes that they are together because he is a rough racketeer mob type guy from St. Louis. James Gregory does have a very gruff nature He's very good at that. But he's a very likable character. I want to talk, Mike. You want to talk? I suppose you mean I got to listen, huh? Well, if you do, it'll be the first time. Okay, Mike. Hi, Mike. Danny Williams, Mike Finney. Hi. Another cop, huh? Now you come to steal a flower? Got anything worth taking? I'll just step right over here. So they got you to save the paper, huh, Mac? How'd you know? It's written all over you. You know, I thought you were too big for that kind of stuff. Isn't that a beauty? Atlea dendrobium. Hybrid orchid rare. Huh? You know, there's not one person in a thousand would know that. Very good got hidden talents. Besides, he's been browsing your store downtown. <laughs> Wise guy, huh? <laughs> Mike, why didn't you testify voluntarily? You'd have been given a fair shake. What do you mean, fair shake? It'd be the same thing all over again. The good guys against the bad guys. They're gonna put me in a hot seat and murder me. Look, Mike, uh, come on, McCarra, don't blow me. I've been there before, remember? Well, they haven't changed the rules any, have they? No. I know the score. If I answer them like I haven't done anything, then they're gonna ask me another question, and then another question, and then... they're gonna start asking me about my friends. What are they up to? How are they making out? Who did they kill today? If I don't answer them, take the fifth, they're gonna say I'm guilty. If I do answer them, but I won't talk about my friends, they're going to hold me in contempt, lock me up, throw away the key. Finished? Yeah. And you get his frustration with Steve, and you get his frustration with this crime probe, because he wants to live in peace, and he, he makes the point of saying that, yeah, they're just going to bring up my past again. This is just a trial, being put on trial for my past. I'll be asked about my friends. It's a never-ending thing. That's why he doesn't want to go. That's why he wants Steve to, to make a deal for him, to get him out of it. And Steve can't do that, which irritates Finney. So throughout the episode, you have the two of them together. And they're kind of, as I would call, combatively friendly. Because they've lived their lives on opposite sides of the line. And sometimes they revert to those roles. So while we have this whole crime probe through line, that is the main crux because it's about getting Mike Finney subpoenaed. It's about the politics that are involved in all of this and the fact that Charles Irwin isn't exactly on the up and up because there is the insinuation that the hit attempt at the party, he's blaming on Mike Finney, but there's evidence that would suggest that no one is gonna miss him in the pool with that particular rifle and those sights that he has. So this could be a setup just to, to get more headlines in favor of Irwin and against Finney. And then later we see that uh, Irwin really pushes the narrative that 5 was covering for Finney and that perhaps he's taking payoffs 
and he tries to orchestrate, he has Fletcher try to orchestrate things to support that narrative, which just shows how far he'll go to support his own narrative and his own version of the truth. So you have all of that happening. And we eventually do get to the crime probe hearing. That actually does happen. So we have that going through the main thread of the episode. One of the subplots is actually with, involves Mike Finney's daughter Judith and Danny because Judith is the one that brings in the paper that the headline implicates Finney in the crime probe. And she's really, really upset about that. And so later then Danny goes back to ask about Vince Watson and she doesn't know anything and she's really upset with the way her father is being treated. And it's a tense kind of exchange because there's a little bit of animosity on both sides because Dana was seeing Judith as being uncooperative and Judith is seeing Danny as being a cop. So there is some animosity there, but that kind of falls away when Daniel realizes he's overstepped himself because it turns out Judith is a teacher for disabled children. And he realizes he's overstepped a bounds when he kind of throws that in her face because why is he being this sort of a dick? I don't know. But smooth move, Dano. Jeez. Anyway, he realizes he's overstepped. And then later, after Fletcher is killed in Mike Finney's office and they realize that that bullet was probably meant for Finney, they get put under protective custody, whether Finney likes it or not. Danny is assigned to follow Judith around to make sure she's safe. And he stakes her out while she's at the school. And he sees her interact with the children and it kind of melts his heart a little bit more. When she goes to sit on the bench to eat her lunch, he joins her with his own lunch and asks if if he can make another impression because his first one was so poor. And they do have a nice moment, a nice little bonding moment together. It's really quite sweet. Though they leave their lunches on the bench when she goes to leave and it's like, really? You can't find a garbage can? Okay. Take it with you. Put it in your car. I don't know. So there's this kind of almost like a little love story happening in this subplot over there. Meanwhile, on this other subplot is that there is a direct dire consequence to Irwin using Mike Finney's name in the headlines for his own political gain. And that is his old friends are concerned that he's going to testify at this crime probe and that he's going to start naming names and implicating people. And so this assassin has been sent from the mainland to Honolulu in order to make sure he remains silent. And we see that when he first arrives, he just arrives on a plane. We see him go to a hotel room and open up the suitcase and take out the weaponry. And it's like, well, see, security wasn't the same back then. I can't get on a plane with a bottle of shampoo. And this dude is bringing on a full-on rifle. Anyway, we see this and it has like almost no context. And you're like, what the heck is going on here? And then later when you see him with this tour that goes through the flower shop and you see him break away and go to Mike Finney's office and find that window, which is, it's kind of, I don't know if it's supposed to be frosted or dirty or wet, but it's a hazy kind of a window. And he realizes he can shoot through that window. You see him, you know, line it up. You realize, oh, this guy is, is out for Finney. And so there's consequences to Irwin's drive for political gain that go beyond just smearing Mike Finney's name, beyond trying to gain influence through having this kind of a mockery of a crime probe. There are fatal consequences to his actions. Though the hitman that was sent from the mainland isn't exactly that bright because he's waiting for Finney in the flower shop. It's like three in the morning and he's waiting by that window and you see Fletcher break into the office and go in with a flashlight and then turn on the desk light and sit behind the desk and he starts typing up a bribe note. He has a, an envelope full of money and he starts typing up the bribe note. 
and the hitman shoots him through the window. And it's like, why would you think that the man who owns this flower shop and this is his office, why would you think he would be going in with a flashlight? Why do you think he would not be turning on lights? This is his place. So I think that the hitman was a little overeager because he he could not figure that out, that perhaps the owner of the building would not be going through a building that he owns with a flashlight. But it is rather clever how Steve realizes that it was a pro. It's not the same jackass on the beach. They ended up tracing to Portland and bringing back because, of course, he ran as soon as he did it. They they realize it's not the same guy who took a shot at Irwin because he examines the shotgun cartridge. It's a riot gun, I think is what he said, and it's a special self-load cartridge so they can control the blast and how it disperses. And that's all they need to know is that this is a professional hit and that it was probably from the mainland. So I thought that was rather clever deductive reasoning because we don't have a whole lot of police work, police procedural work going on here aside from tracking down Watson and then later identifying that they have an assassin on the mainland. Most of it is just Steve grousing at politicians and Danny trying to make time with Judith and Erwin being underhanded. The one minor spoilery thing that I will say is that the hitman does not give up after he accidentally kills Fletcher. He ends up accidentally killing someone else in the course of going after Finney and that is Judith is going to the mainland for a vacation. Rudy and Mike Finney pick her up at the school where she and Dano are having lunch. And Danny follows along as this is his job. Follows her all the way to the airport. But the hitman comes up on them and fires into the car and ends up killing Rudy. Which is super sad because Rudy is, he's only in a couple of scenes, but he's an absolute gem. But it's also kind of the turning point for Mike Finney. He realizes that maybe doing things his way, whatever that is isn't going to work out. There are a lot of familiar faces in this guest cast and I love them all, so let's take a closer look at them. As I said, Mike Finney is played by James Gregory. This is his second of two episodes. We saw him play Jonathan Kay in the pilot Cocoon. Charles Irwin is played by Jason Evers. This is his first of three episodes. He was James Sonnet on The Guns of Will Sonnet, which also starred Walter Brennan and Dak Rambo. He was Professor Jason Ho on Channing. It was a short-lived show with Henry Jones. And he was Pitcairn on a short-lived show called Wrangler. He also turned up on The Phil Silvers Show, Rebel, Surfside 6, 77 Sunset Strip, Laramie, Perry Mason, Gunsmoke, Green Hornet, Bonanza, Big Valley, The Wild Wild West, Mod Squad, Mission Impossible, Mannix, Ironside, Cannon, Streets of San Francisco, Emergency, Charlie's Angels, Happy Days, Knight Rider, Murder, She Wrote, and Matlock. He was in the movies Basket Case 2, Barracuda, Claws, Escape from Planet of the Apes, The Green Berets, and House of Women. He's also in the TV movies Golden Gate and Ferdelance, but he is probably best known as Dr. Bill Cortner in the movie The Brain That Wouldn't Die, which was made immortal in an episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Joe Fletcher was played by Lyle Betker. We'll see him in 11 more episodes. He was Harry Driscoll on Grand Jury. He was also Sam Larson on The Court of Last Resort. He turned up in shows like Wagon Train, Rifleman, Laramie, Rawhide, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, The Virginian, Mannix, Ironside, and Barnaby Jones. He was in the movies The Hawaiians, Impasse, 
Return of the Gunfighter, Nevada Smith, Johnny Reno, Gunfight at the OK Corral, The Lone Ranger, and The Greatest Show on Earth. And he was in the TV movie in Station Hawaii. Senator John Oishi was played by Key Luke. This man has 225 credits going back to 1934. So here are just a few. He was Crawlahome on the Anna and the King TV series. He was also Master Poe in Kung Fu. He also turned up on shows like Gunsmoke, Perry Mason, I Spy, Andy Griffith, Dragnet 67, Big Valley, Star Trek, Adam 12, Canon, Harry O, Quincy, Emmy, Charlie's Angels, MASH, Remington Steel, Voyagers, Magnum P.I., A-Team, Trapper John M.D., Golden Girls, Night Court, and MacGyver. He turned up in the movies Gremlins and Gremlins 2, The Mighty Quinn, The Hawaiians, Project X, the 1968 movie. And he was Cato in The Green Hornet and The Green Hornet Strikes Again. And he was Lee Chan in several of the Charlie Chan movies. He was also in the TV movies Fly Away Home, Cocaine and Blue Eyes, and Kung Fu, the movie, as Master Poe. Judith Finney was played by Karen Erickson. We'll see her in one more episode. She also turned up in shows like Batman, The Bold Ones, The Lawyers, Mod Squad, Mannix, Bob Newhart, and Chips. She was in the movies Night of the Demons, Dirty Half Dozen, The Return of Count Yorga, and The Boston Strangler. And she was in the TV movie Drive Hard, Drive Fast. Rudy was played by Charles Gilbert. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in No Blue Skies in the first season. The Hitman was played by Nick Benedict. He also turned up on the shows Mission Impossible, Ironside, Dan August, Alias Smith & Jones, The Rookies, All My Children, Dukes of Hazard, Santa Barbara, and Days of Our Lives. He was in the movies The Naked Cage, An American Summer, Angela Mooney Dies Again, and Route 66. And he's in the TV movies Devil's Food and Memories of Murder. Senator Colt was played by Jim Demarest. This is his second of seven episodes we also saw him in uh, the first season episode, Pray, Love, Remember, Pray, Love, Remember. Vince Watson was played by Morgan Sean. We'll see him in five more episodes. Maybe I won't mingle his name then. He was also in the TV shows Space Patrol, Highway Patrol, 77 Sunset Strip, Maverick, and Lassie. And he was in the movies The Gambler Wore a Gun and Gunfight. In an uncredited role, the process server was played by Pitt Herbert. He has 135 credits going back to 1955 listed on IMDb. So here are just a couple of them. He turned up in the TV shows Perry Mason, FBI, The Wild Wild West, The Brady Bunch, My Three Sons, The Virginian, Mannix, Little House on the Prairie, and Mama's Family. He was in the movies How to Frame a Fig, HUD, and The Trouble with Girls. And he was in the TV movies Crowhaven Farm, The Manhunter, and Cry Panic. Our writer was William Robert Yates. So in addition to the two episodes of Hawaii Five-O, he also wrote five episodes of Garrison's Gorillas, four episodes of Spencer for Hire, seven episodes of The Magical World of Disney. He also wrote the movies Chander, The Black Leopard of Ceylon, and he, wrote the, he has writing credits for the TV movies Diamonds on Wheels, The Hunted Lady, and Backs to the Streets of San Francisco. He's also listed as the creator for the Spencer for Hire spin-off, A Man Called Hawk. And he has producer credits for The Streets of San Francisco, Spencer for Hire, A Man Called Hawk, Gun Shy, and Tales of the Unexpected. And he also has producer credits for the TV movies Lefty, The Ghost of Buxley Hall, The Hunted Lady, and The Force of Evil. And that is All the King's Horses. It's a really great episode. Like I said, 
a lot goes on, but it's not overwhelming. It's not cluttered. You're not confused. I think it really does capture the essence of politics quite well. It has this great theme of redemption in it as well and does ask the very important question, when has a man finished paying his debt? And it's James Gregory being gruff. Who doesn't love James Gregory being gruff? Trust me, you're going to dig this one. Give it a watch. Go fast, big boy. Try me. And that is episode 18 of Bookum Dano. Thank you once again for joining me. I apologize for the incredibly loud house slash neighborhood that I live in. I swear to you, everything was absolutely quiet until I hit record. That's how it goes sometimes. But thanks for hanging in there with me throughout all of this. I do appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy the show. Somehow we managed to have a good time. And these were two fun episodes. We got two really good, solid episodes. Really enjoyable. You can't ask for better than that. Well, maybe you can, but I'm not going to. If you want to find me online, you can do that by going to my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. It is the home for Bookum Dano. And if you need my ramblings in real time, sans background noise, you can do that by following me on Twitter at kikiwrites. So hang on to your wallet while you're fleeing from hired killers and keep your name out of the papers so you don't attract any more of them. Until next time, aloha. Aloha.